This is FX Radio and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. With me on the line today is Dr Jason Kaplan, a cardiologist who graduated from the University of New South Wales in 1999 with honours. He completed his residency and adult internal medicine training at the St George and Prince of Wales hospitals and his adult cardiology training at RPAH. He is an accomplished general adult physician, having done additional training in general adult medicine and medical oncology prior to commencing his cardiology training and is dedicated to holistic patient care. His clinical interests include general adult cardiology and preventative cardiology. Dr Kaplan has a subspeciality training in non-invasive cardiac imaging and performs stress echocardiology, transesophageal echocardiography and CT coronary angiography. Jason has been clinical associate professor in medicine at both the University of New South Wales and the University of Sydney and is a current medical officer at the Royal Prince Alfred Hospital, RPAH, Sydney, where he teaches undergraduate and postgraduate students. That was a mouthful. Welcome, Jason. (laughs) Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for having me. How are you? And welcome back to Australia. I understand you've just been overseas. Yeah, just for two weeks, uh, two weeks in South Africa uh, where I was born, um, seeing the family, but yeah, all good to be back. (laughs) Wonderful. So my first question to you is a bit of a convoluted one, and I'm sorry for this, but it's based around statins and LDL. But what about, you know, niacin for high-density lipoproteins? We've seen some recent negative studies like the AIM High and the HPS2 Thrive studies, possibly you know, sort of negating the the positive effects or beneficial effects of, of niacin with HDL. And it, my question is, is it regarding functionality where, you know, rather than just levels of HDL? But I guess the main question is, if it is due to the functionality, which may be important for HDL, what about the functionality of low-density lipoproteins? So Andrew, that is a that is a great question, and I think functionality becomes pretty pretty important. And you're right; the recent studies about HDL, including AIM, AIM High and uh, HPS2 Thrive, were negative for for the long term positive cardiovascular effect on niacin. So despite raising HDL, which intuitively we might know might be protective, they did not actually show an improvement in hard cardiovascular endpoints, such as reduction in mortality and cardiovascular death. Mm. And so really, I think the use of niacin in mainstream cardiovascular medicine is, is dead in the water. Also, niacin is very difficult to take clinically. Mm. <laughs> so despite us being able to raise the number, it actually didn't show any, any hard endpoints. But what now becomes really important, and I think you've touched on something very important, is the functionality or the type of, of LDL. And this goes to a broader holistic viewpoint about individualized medicine in, in cardiovascular disease. We are very driven by cardiovascular guidelines and algorithms in, in modern medicine today. And if you were to, for example, to plug people's cholesterol numbers into risk score calculators based on their age and other risk factors, if you just did that without looking at other factors of a patient's, of a patient's health or what else is going on with them, you would be putting a lot more people on cholesterol-lowering medications. Mm. That, that's what happens generally, generally in the community. I think 
the more a more useful approach and what my approach is to actually create a personalized plan for the individual. That actually involves partly looking at does the person have the presence of the disease? And the disease is atherosclerosis. Mm. You know, if you don't have atherosclerosis, you don't your cholesterol doesn't necessarily need to be treated. We know that lowering LDL over the long term reduces events, but there are many other protective factors that protect people against cardiovascular disease and and heart attacks. And it's not just the cholesterol story, as we're starting to find out. Yeah. We're finding out, you know, metabolic syndrome, inflammation, your lack of physical exercise, um, obesity. All these things, you know, have deleterious effects on people's people's cardiovascular health. Yeah. I just want to give you a patient example that I had had just the other day that actually illustrates the point beautifully. Mm -hmm. This is a fit man. He used to train world champion athletes and he's actually a rugby coach for a very large very large rugby team. And he's in the most he's fifty eight years old and probably one of the best fifty eight year old men in my practice. You know, physically in, in great condition, you know, can exercise to fifteen metabolic equivalents on the treadmill, no symptoms. But his cholesterol is six point eight. So we've done a test called in my specialist called a, a CT coronary calcium score on yep. him, which looks for the presence of atherosclerotic plaque, and he has no plaque whatsoever. It is zero. Hmm. But his cholesterol is high. So then, talking about functionality, I went and did on him, uh, I analyzed his LDL particles. And this is something that, that can be done. It's not quite mainstream yet because it is it's not it's more expensive than a regular cholesterol test, or so a regular cholesterol test might cost around thirty to forty dollars. This cost is around three hundred dollars. But when you think about over the long term, may save people on medication or long term or for or pharmaceuticals. I think it's a pretty good investment in people's health. Hmm. So when we analyzed his, his, L, his LDL, we found out that his, his LDL was mostly made up of non-pathogenic LDL subfractions. This is so, the large you know, fluffy the ones. Is that large right? fluffy <laughs> ones and not the, exactly, the large <laughs> fluffy ones as opposed to the small, more atherogenic particles. Yeah. So the large fluffy ones are, the large fluffy ones are less atherogenic, so less likely to cause atherosclerosis, while the small, you know, dense ones are more likely. So this man's, all his, his LDL was mostly based on large fluffy ones. So despite him having a cholesterol of 6.8, you know, there was no, he really didn't, did, did not need treatment. And I think this is an approach that we need to start to use more and more often, talking about the functionality and, and how likely do you have atherogenic, you know, atherogenic, you know, LDL particles. And it's not being used, not being used mainstream. So when I talk about an integrated cardiovascular assessment, when someone comes, some patient comes to me, I look at all, at all of these things because if we're going to commit someone to either medication or long-term supplementation, you want to be sure that they are firstly, you know, at risk and then that they need the medication. What I see so often is, you know, people being treated for a disease they don't have. Hmm. I, I think right from the outset, we need to go back to the quote-unquote cholesterol story because I do this all the time. When we talk about LDL, we're not just talking about cholesterol because LDL is not cholesterol. LDL is uh, an acronym for li uh, low-density lipoprotein. So we've automatically just included, included protein. <laughs> Yes. Tell me about the molecule. Like, you know, like there's, other, there's antioxidants in there and, and a lot of other things in this molecule. 
what are we? Why did we get stuck on cholesterol as a term, and why do we automatically associate that with LDL? Uh, look, I mean, we're stuck on cholesterol because LDL is uh, the cholesterol molecule that's been associated with bad cardiovascular outcomes. And also, we know that when you can reduce LDL, you lower cardiovascular events. But it's, as you said, you know, the whole cholesterol story is changing because cholesterol is actually a vital component of cell membranes. There's a lot of good things about cholesterol. Mm. There's good cholesterol. There's, there's HDL. There's, there's non-HDL cholesterol. Your cholesterol profile is actually also made up of triglycerides as well. So it's not just the, it's not just the LDL, not just the LDL story. Mm. And also, it's not just cholesterol that is involved in, in cardiovascular disease. People, you know, a lot of, a lot of people think mistakenly that I can just fix up my cholesterol, that, you know, I will be able to prevent cardiovascular disease. Well, it's not just about cholesterol, because when I was doing my cardiovascular fellowship and treating people with acute heart attacks, the majority of people who came into hospital actually would have had normal cholesterol levels if you'd taken the cholesterol. So it's not just about the cholesterol story. And I think it's really important to get the message out there that there's so many other factors involved in people's cardiovascular health and their risk for cardiovascular risk for cardiovascular events and I think you know people get too caught up on the on, on the cholesterol number but really need to take into account the whole picture mm. so even when you achieved your LDL target um, you are uh, at risk if you like of this residual risk which occurs there's still there's still a residual risk and we look at things like inflammation that you know you know, residual inflammation, activity, the amount of, you know, sometimes you can look at the more atherogenic particles. And, you know, obviously we do our best to try, for high-risk people, we try to reduce the residual risk, but there's still a residual risk there for a lot of people. Mm. So tell me, you know, with, with standard medical practice, how does a doctor cope with and treat this residual risk that that is basically hovering around that patient and you're just hoping that it doesn't occur. Tell me how a doctor treats that or, or prevents that. Oh, well, I think the most important thing, and when, you know, a lot of practitioners have someone in front of them, I think the, the key question to ask in, in front of them is to say, well, what, what is their ongoing and, and residual risk? And if it, they fall into a high-risk category, you need to do as much as you can to, you know, to... Try to bring down that residual risk. So, when I'm evaluating, a lot of what I do, and a lot of people come to me, is for, for cardiovascular risk assessment. Because when I think, when someone has a heart attack or a stroke, it is, you know, I think ultimately it's a failure of the preventative side of medicine to, to have treated that. So, if someone's got a high residual risk, if they've got cholesterol, they've still got high blood pressure, they're still not exercising, that their diet is still not very good, I will do my best to strongly, you know, address those risk factors. You know, data published just a few weeks ago from the American College of Cardiology in San Diego showed that four out of five heart attacks in men can be prevented by lifestyle factors. And we've really moved, I think unfortunately a lot of medicine has moved away from focusing on lifestyle and nutrition as a way of preventing cardio cardiovascular mm. disease. You know, we have all these things in our armamentarium, we have drugs, we have, we have statins, we have blood pressure medications, we're very powerful blood thinning medications, but at the same time we, we still see people on all these medications that have cardiac events. So I really sort of think the focus of, of the future needs to be on treating people's lifestyle. And as you know, Andrew, that's a lot 
tougher to treat mm. than giving people pills. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So let's briefly go into that. How do you find compliance? I mean, obviously somebody's going to be quite motivated if they come to see you for risk assessment. Yeah. But... I find compliance is a lot better when you can show people the presence of disease, which is why I think uh, imaging tests or some sort of test actually show them, do you have cholesterol plaque in the arteries? This is what your arteries look like, motivates people motivates people a, a lot better. I also find it sometimes useful in people who are higher risk to show them what their their actual risk of a cardiovascular event is over the next 10 years. Mm. And there's a risk score calculator that I think is very useful, published by the American Heart Association. Um, and actually, show, if you tell someone in front of you your risk of having a heart attack or stroke is 1 in 10 over the next five years, I think that can be highly motivating. The problem is people don't appreciate, you know, what risk they are or what can happen. If, if they don't, if they if, if they don't take action, um, so I often try to show them what's going on inside. And as my specialty is non-invasive imaging, so I basically can see inside all aspects of the heart without sticking catheters and wires into people, and we get a very good idea about what's happening. You know, ongoing motivation is a is a challenge, and you know. And, you know, needs a support team. As a, as a doctor, just seeing someone, you know, once, maybe once or twice a year, I have limited, you know, ability to do that. And that's why I think it's good if people have an ongoing support team, that have people that are keeping them on track. And that's why you see a lot of organizations offering, like some of the health funds, offering coach programs. Yep. And these have been, these interventions have been shown to help keep people on track. Also being part of a tribe or a community or an online community. Hmm. I think all these things are tools that we can use to, you know, to help patients, you know, keep, stay compliant and, and keep them, keep them motivated. I think, I think it's a huge issue, isn't it? Like with all of the weight loss programs that are around, even the the one which has the highest evidence, it matters zero over five years. The the weight regain is exactly the same unless you have behaviour modification. Yep. And yep. that's only with support. That's so, only with support. So it's the yep. differentiator no matter what you use. <laughs> it's yeah, I, 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 I totally agree. And that's where, you know, medical organisations need, need, need a change. We need, you know, adequate support. You know, the greatest, you know, tragedy is send someone, you know, you get all the risk factors and then treat it and then they come out, you know, a few years' time and just go back to their bad lifestyle habits. Mm. Um, I just want to ask a quick question regarding um, CT coronary angiography versus the standard um, angiography. Sure. Um, uh, with regards to calcified plaques versus fatty plaques. Sure. Um, so, look, standard angiography, which is what you know we do when we stick catheters, usually via the femoral artery or via the radial arteries, basically just looks inside the lumen of the coronary arteries. And it gives you an idea about the degree of narrowing. But it doesn't give an idea about either fatty plaques or doesn't quantify atherosclerosis. The great thing about CT coronary angiography, which is, I think, a tool that's going to be used more and more as the technology becomes more mature and also as the radiation doses is coming down, is a tool that allows us to, without being invasive to the patient, allows us to actually visualize plaque. So we can see calcified plaque, meaning plaque that's been there for many years, 
or we can see very early plaque. And early plaque means, you know, early fiber or fatty plaque that's, that's very soft, that's just been laid down in the artery. And that is often more likely to rupture and cause cause cardiac events and we can look at it and then we can say look this looks like a high risk you know a high risk plaque mm-hmm. the great thing about that plaque is when it's soft it can be reversed and it's for those people that we tend to get very aggressive with their with their lipid lowering therapy right. um, and so it's becoming a really important tool at differentiating people who have disease and, and don't have the disease um, and you know it's part you know in terms of using there's a CT coronary angiography and the test called calcium scoring. You know, I, for most of my patients with high cholesterol, I would be recommending it. You know, coronary artery calcium scoring, which is part of the CT scan, has been shown to be the, the greatest, you know, tool in terms of identifying people into high and low risk categories. So let's look at some of these lipid lowering or balancing therapies. Phytosterols have, uh, you know, level one and two evidence for reducing LDL. What is it, five to ten percent? Yeah. Tell me how you use them. Standalone, concomitant with statins. What What do you use? I look. I do both standalone and with and with statins as well. Um, you know, standalone they can lower cholesterol by five to by five to ten percent. Um, and I think for people that don't fall into a high risk category yet have a slightly high cholesterol and want to do something to lower their cholesterol, I think standalone plant phytosterols are very are very helpful. The thing is, people often don't get adequate doses of them. You need two to three grams a day to make a clinical to sort of make a clinical effect yeah. um, these can be taken in the form of you know oral oral medication it's been shown that their effects actually additive to statins the way the phytosterols work is they seem to work by lowering cholesterol absorption through through the through the GI tract mm. that's why they may not work as well when you give with a medication like ezetimibe which works in a very similar fashion yeah. so when you add them in addition to ezetimibe which is another common cholesterol lowering medication yeah. they actually don't work as well but studies have been shown when you add them to statins they seem to work synergistically so in all my patients with high cholesterol I would recommend the use of plant phytosterols yeah. and it often may limit the amount of statin we, we give people as you know a lot of people are very sensitive to statin side effects and also people want to minimize the amount of statins that are taking which I think is a very reasonable very reasonable thing to do considering some of the side effects especially seen at high dose statins and, and I'll tell you something that's very interesting when you increase the dose of a torvastatin which is Lipitor which is the most commonly prescribed statin from 40 to 80 when you double that dose you you only get a 7% reduction mm. in LDL, all right? So you're getting much more bang for your buck by deciding to, you know, add the addition of plant phytosterols than by putting in much, by doubling the dose of atorvastatin and significantly increasing the chance of side effects such as, you know, muscle aches or, or liver problems. And diabetes as well? And diabetes and, you know, early cognitive impairment, I mean, possible early cognitive impairment. So all these things, you know, at much higher dose statins, you see, so if we can minimise the dose of statins we, have, we, we give people, I think that's a really good thing. Hmm. And are phytosterols relevant for only primary prevention? What about secondary prevention or preventing future heart attacks? I think... 
this is, a, I think, a really important point that a lot of when you use things like like phytosterols, um, some of the trials have not been large-scale trials mm. because this is not a pharmaceutical, so you're never going to see very you know large outcomes. When you look at the total L, if you can get your LDL down, the lower the LDL you can do, the lower the especially if you've had an event. I'm talking about if yeah. you've had an event, so secondary prevention. Mm-hmm. If you've had an event, you can lower your LDL. You'll reduce events. I recently uh, interviewed the uh, the editor of uh, the Journal of Internal Medicine in America, Dr. Rita Redberg, and her feeling was that you know if you can lower your LDL, no matter how you did it, whether you did it with cholesterol-lowering medication or diet or natural compounds, you were able to reduce reduce cardiovascular events. And I'd say what's interesting, Andy, when you look at more, you know, there's a study published in the American Heart Association Journal where you look at more Paleolithic man or prehistoric man, their cholesterol levels were naturally much lower. They had LDLs, you know, around two, even even less than two, and they had a much lower incidence of, uh, we, studies have been showing that much lower incidence of, I guess, of coronary artery disease. And so when, if you can use phytosterols to lower LDL, certainly it logically would seem there would be better in primary prevention as well. Right. Now, we have to go on to something quite con- controversial at the moment, fish oil. There's been some recent bad press, and, and indeed just last week there was some. But the Gissy P, the Jealous trial, the DART trial still stand. Um, tell me where we're going with this. What, what's happening here? Look, there is a lot of controversy about fish oils, and there's a lot in the in the media, you know, a lot in the media about it. And you know, studies keep on getting published. And actually, there there's a lot of conflicting there's a lot of conflicting data in some of the larger studies. You know, some of the larger studies that have been done have been meta-analyses. When you talk about meta-analyses, these are studies that pool multiple studies and pool all the patients together, and then try and analyze, and then try and analyze. You know what what comes out of what what comes out of it. I think, as you mentioned, the, the GCP, the Jealous and the Dart study were were large trials that showed a positive benefit for fish oils, especially in secondary prevention for people who've already, who've already had sort of cardiac uh, who may have had cardiac cardiac events and then reduced future cardiovascular events. We seem to know that fish oils seem to or the consumption of of oily fish reduce cardiovascular risk. Mm. I don't think that there's any doubt about, any doubt about, about that. We know that it's probably better from the plate than the bottle. And I think that's a really important concept that mm. I try, you know, to get across to people, not just in terms of use of fish oils, but also, you know, in general, that if you can get it from the diet, it's better than, better than taking it from a bottle. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the other benefit from fish oils that you know wasn't also touted in some of this work is its reduction in triglycerides as well, mm-hmm. uh, which is part of your cholesterol profile. Often you have to do this at, at higher doses. Fish oils also have an antiarrhythmic effect, which is not talked about as much, which you don't hear about mm-hmm. in the studies, and that's thought to be part of the benefit of reducing sudden cardiac death, atrial fibrillation, and arrhythmias. They seem to be very stabilizing on, on cardiovascular membranes. And I think when you when you see a lot of the stuff that was published, you can you'll be able to find people that say, look at the study that was done and says, no, I don't I don't agree with the methodology with the methodology of that study. Mm. But despite all that's come out, I still think that fish oils are certainly not harmful to people. 
they certainly could be of benefit at reducing at reducing cardiovascular risk, and I don't think we should be throwing them out in our armamentarium at the moment in terms of cardiovascular disease prevention. I'm still a very strong advocate of of using them, and if people are not getting adequate fish in their diet, I'd be recommending their use. The other thing that I think is really important when the use of fish oil is make sure you have a good quality fish oil, and you know, making sure you get adequate amounts of active and active ingredients. Mm. You know, uh, and I think it's really important that some of the fish oils that get sold at pharmacies and um, health food shops actually have very little active ingredient in them, and people have to take you know very high doses. And I think when choosing a fish oil, it can be done by a very reputable manufacturer and at a very high at a, at a higher dose to get the to get the clinical benefit. The, the, the sort of the dose we think about is about you know, 500 milligrams, at least 500 to 1,000 milligrams a day. Probably more than that is not going to be not going to be too additive in reducing cardiovascular risk. There was some really interesting research. I'm glad you mentioned the um, antiarrhythmic effect of fish oils because it, it, it happens at a much smaller dose than what you need to have a clinical effect with reducing triglycerides. And there was some really interesting research done years ago now by Professor Peter McClellan of Wollongong University um, showing that antiarrhythmic effect or that stabilising effect on the membrane. Uh, that was really good. Um, also, Professor Frank Rosenfeld's Integrative Cardiac Wellness Group at the Alfred Hospital in Victoria, he indicated a very interesting interventional approach um, to um, prepare people for elective cardiac surgery where he used this metabolic nutrient formulation, which includes magnesium orotate, CoQ10, and lipoic acid, and importantly selenium with Frank, but also the fish oil before cardiac surgery, um, and he showed striking improvements. What do you use in your clinic, though, when preparing people for surgery or, indeed, if they have something like arrhythmia, which do you want to protect against ill effects? Look, I, I read that study, and I think they've done a great job down there at the Alfred in, in Victoria. Uh, ideally, in an ideal world, we would, you know, possibly pre-treat people with the combination that you suggested because after cardiac surgery, you can imagine the heart becomes very irritable. The heart has been handled by, by hands, the scarring of the tissue, there's ongoing inflammation. And the combination of nutrients you suggested actually reduce the inflammation and actually actually reduce the, the arrhythmic potential. You know, over 25% of people after cardiac surgery get some sort of arrhythmia, mm. including the most common is a rhythm called atrial fibrillation. And in actual fact, I use fish oils to reduce atrial fibrillation in my in my clinic population. You know, if people are getting lots of arrhythmias um, or lots of palpitations, you know, fish oil is one of my first line yeah. things to, you know, to try for them. Um, so, I'm, unfortunately, I'm not quite yet at a stage where, it can, where I guess where that we're using every that combination that you suggested for everyone undergoing cardiac surgery, but there's no doubt that you know I think it does provide a benefit by having its antioxidants and anti-inflammatory effects, and also reducing the amount of arrhythmias postoperatively, which can be very costly and can necessitate people needing to go on more blood thinners, complicating their hospital course and prolonging the hospital course. Yeah. Um, I'd love to see it, you know, more more mainstream. Mm. Yeah, it'd be great to see, uh, you know, a hard endpoint um, with that sort of research. 
Yep, yeah. yep. I, just, I think you need more numbers, more people using it, and uh, but I think it's it's a bit hopefully possible to show in the future. Yeah. So CoQ10, it's you know traditionally it's been touted for statin myositis, and I, I question that one. Quite controversial. Yeah. Um, but. Uh, Frank, again, did a, a meta-analysis showing clinical and practical benefit in lowering BP. Talk to me about this. What's your clinical experience? Where do you see it working there? Yeah, look, I think I've read that meta-analysis, and I think it can certainly lower blood blood pressure, though I'm unaware of the exact mechanism that it, that it, may, it may help. You know, I agree with your statement about the question about statin, my, statin myositis and... I think that it's often, you know, overused in, 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 that, mm. situ- in, in that situation. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it certainly can be benefit people's overall card- cardiovascular health, and especially if it can lower blood pressure. I think, you know, but the other really the other important point I think is the point that it may not work for all people. Yeah. So what I often suggest to people is you give it a therapeutic trial, you know, for a few months and see what effect that it what effect that it has. He has on you because yeah. all of us are so pharmacogenetically different. The way our liver metabolizes drugs and supplements is very different. We're going to respond respond differently. Um, where often we find CoQ10 very helpful is actually in people with cardiomyopathies, meaning a weak heart muscle or heart failure when they're already on other maximal medical therapy. Mm-hmm. And we're starting to use slightly high high doses of CoQ10 in these people, but actually very good results. Now, when, you, when we've added in CoQ10 to maximal tablet therapy, we've seen an improvement in their overall ejection fraction, so their heart's pumping, their heart's pumping ability. And this, I think, it's a, it's a very useful and it's been very well studied. Dr. Mark Houston, uh, is actually coming for the Biocidicals Conference this week, has had extensive experience using it in cardiomyopathy with very with very good results. Um, you know, I think a lot of people do get you do get benefit from it, but I would caution people about taking it blindly for. Mm. True statin myositis, Andrew, is actually fairly rare. Mm. You know, when you're talking about a myositis, you really inflammation. inflammation of the muscles, rise in creatinine kinase measured on blood tests, true possible weakness, proximal muscle weakness. I've maybe seen, you know, one, I've seen one case in five years of clinical practice as a cardiologist, and that was when statins were given with an antibiotic inhibiting their, their metabolism right. in the liver. Right. And, um, you know, but, Often you see people have muscle aches and pains, and CoQ10 may be helpful on an individual basis in that situation. And you just ask, does it does it work for them? But to blanketly give CoQ CoQ10 to people to everyone on statins, I think is is going a little bit far these days, especially yeah. given the recent trial data. Yeah, to me the first differentiation is between myalgia and myositis. Yeah. And the second one is, it was a great paper written by Markov, and he basically said, you know, as you're saying, is it's not for everybody, but if you find that you've got myalgia, you may want to trial CoQ10, and it may or may not work, but at least it's shown to be safe, so it might be worth a shot. You know, but but, but the evidence isn't there to say, yes, we should use it. Yep, yep. Mm. Look, I think it's a very reasonable approach. Mm. Jason, you mentioned earlier about compliance with lifestyle and dietary interventions, uh, that it was a lot easier when you could show evidence of disease. The DASH 1 and 2 diets are very commonly used in cardiology. 
How do you find their um, application? Right, so Andrew, so the DASH diet stands for Dietary Approaches to Lower Hypertension, and it's been a, a, a diet or diet guideline developed that seems to be, that is very high in, in fruit and vegetables, um, obviously lower, lower in salt to try and reduce, you know, blood pressure. Um, people tend to go on it for a while, but after a while, my experience is they they tend to they tend to relapse. The experience has been that they you know will often you know be able to show a reduction in blood in blood pressure for for a period of time, but long term compliance with dash type with a dash or a modified dash diet can be problematic over over many years. Mm. Um, I think it's very difficult. I mean, they can follow the guidelines, the guidelines in it, and I think people need to come up with a way of eating that allows them to still enjoy enjoy certain aspects of their food and not feeling they're being, you know, too restrictive. But also something that they can adhere to over over the, over the long term, and that's been a problem with things like the Ornish diet as well, which is shown. Dean Ornish, as some yep. of your listeners might know, you know, is one of America's top you know preventative cardiologists, has actually shown with an almost uh, sort of vegan, vegetarian, plant-based diet to show a total you know reduction in coronary atherosclerosis, but people find it very difficult to adhere to over the long term. I mean, the DASH diet has been shown to be effective. People, you know, in terms of lowering, using dietary methods to lower blood pressure, it's important and, you know, higher fruit and vegetables, lower salt, but I don't think you can neglect the effects of weight and physical exercise. They're almost just as important when combined with the DASH diets, and I think if you just the diets by themselves, you would, you you wouldn't get as much of a reduction in blood pressure as if you decide if people were able to, you know, make sure they they lost weight and also did a moderate amount of, of physical physical activity. Mm. You know, if I could prescribe one drug for people in my practice, it would be physical exercise. Mm. <laughs> here, here, honey. I think you just told <laughs> <Yeah>. me. <laughs> <laughs> And I, you know, I, I I think the 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 term here is you can't eat your way to improved fitness. Yeah, <laughs> that's a, that's a, that's a great statement. You can't. So, so, what dangers of nutritional therapy do you see? What do you see with? Um, what do you wish that natural medicine practitioners would heed, like an inattention to, um, and possibly referral for symptoms of, say, acute coronary syndrome, sure. monitoring BP? You know, like. To me, monitoring blood pressure is the single most important test that any practitioner can do throughout their lifestyle, uh, lifetime career. You're right. It is, and in actual fact, over the age of over the age of 50, blood pressure becomes the most important cardiovascular risk factor. If we're able to, you know lower blood pressure over people's lifetime by at least 20 millimetres of mercury, we would, we would reduce the overall incidence of both you know, heart attacks, strokes, and what people don't realise is, is heart failure. So I think anyone looking after, looking after you know, patients should at least be able to measure, you know, get an idea of blood pressure. And certainly if, not, if people are not you know, at a healthy blood pressure, which is you know, less than 140 of 90, 140 over 90. This should this this needs to this needs to be addressed. Yeah. I think the really important thing when you know with practitioners or you know complementary practitioners looking after people, 
And I think, and I think, you know, people often need a dual approach with conventional Western medicine and complementary medicine to achieve health goals. Is that knowing when you have a high-risk patient in front of you, so identifying who the high-risk patient is and identifying who is actually a fairly complex patient. It's lots of other medical problems going on. It's lots of other medications, and also knowing the interactions between natural supplements and and some of the medications or cardiac medications that might be on, as you mentioned. You know, warfarin, and we're seeing some of the newer, some of the newer oral anticoagulants, which don't have as many interactions. And at least having something in the arm, something available to them that allows them to look at the interactions between natural, natural supplements and conventional medications, because you don't want to be giving something that would, I guess, counteract the counteract the effects of the medication that's being prescribed or cause something to be dangerous, have dangerous levels in people's plasma or, or in their blood system. And I'll tell you, Andrew, there's actually, I'm not really aware of a very, very good resource in this way. You, you might be aware of it, but I've often, you know, had to do a significant amount of research on Medline or various other ways to actually look for, you know, good quality interactions between natural supplements and, uh, you know, and conventional medication. Mm. Um, I've I got to say here, Blackmores has, has uh, published a really good uh, medical interaction chart. Um, it's, it's, it's not totally exhaustive, but it's pretty comprehensive. Yes, yeah, I've seen the Blackmores. I think that's, that's very good. Yeah, that's that's yeah. very good as well. It has a, the, lot of, has, has a lot of things in I, them. I think the thing is that we need to, we need to look at um, subspecialities. Here's one for cardiologists. Here's one for neurologists. Yes, yeah, so, that's right. So many drugs now and so many interactions. So what about things like, uh, you know, the new vitamin E? We, traditionally, I was only taught about tocopherols, and then it was, hang on, what's this other thing? I remember this. I'll always remember this around the, um, the mid to late 90s. It was like, no, there's this other thing called tocotrienols. Tell me about yeah, that. Look, what do you? So in use? a way, toco, toco trials is in a way. You, I'd like to think about it as a new vi- the vitamin E for the 21st century, <laughs> and you know it's a it's it's different to the previous form of vitamin E, and it seems to have an effect at as both as an antioxidant effect and an effect at reduce at effect at reducing the enzyme that actually statins are involved at, at inhibiting HMA CoA reductase HMA CoA reductase. Mm. And I think, as you know, I think you know more companies, and I know Blackmore's and Biocellulose are starting to include it as their as their vitamin E form of of choice in in some of their products because I think it does have superior it does have superior you know out, outcome outcome effects and prote- and protective effects. And there was a very large study published in terms of being able to reduce look people reducing atherosclerosis where they used toco retinols as a as one of the agents along with along with vitamin vitamin C and they're actually able to show a clinical reduction in atherosclerosis when when used with this compound um, you know I think we're going to start to you know see it being used uh, more and more um, and you know I, I think it's uh, I think it's probably going to be beneficial in people's cardiovascular health so what dose do you remember what dose they use of the tocotrinols there I don't have that on hand. Okay. No, no, that's all right. Yeah. Oh, um, I have one last question. One quick last question. The new K, the new kid on the block, K 
Well, K2 is not really the new kid on the block. It's been around since the 90s. It <laughs> <laughs> um, was early data in the 90s. Look, I'm not, and I know there's been, uh, I, I actually haven't used a lot of K2, Andrew, uh, in terms of clinical practice. My limited experience with it, that it seems to be more beneficial in women um, in terms of lowering, lowering cholesterol. Mm. But to be honest, I don't have a lot of clinical experience. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. It's some early days yet, I think, but uh, it'd be yep. very exciting to see what the future of the research brings out. Yep, yep. Look, I think this is you know an, an emerging field. I think you know patients are asking patients are asking are there other ways that we besides pharmaceuticals that we can look at you know look at reducing our cholesterol, reducing our cardiovascular risk. I think you know if there's you know one message I'd like to you know leave people with is that if, if people did the simple things right, I mean, there's a lot, you know, out there and people and they keep looking for the next, you know, superfood, next, the next super pill. But the really, the more challenging thing is to stick with a good exercise program, a good quality, you know, a good diet. When you look at the study published from the New England Journal of Medicine, a Mediterranean-style diet, Mediterranean. whole, food, whole food based, <laughs> all right, reduced heart attacks and strokes by over 40%. That is better than statins, mm. right? I mean, and I just think you've got to go back to some of these, these simple things. And if people have got that as a good foundation for their cardiovascular health, then any, as and, and then as a middle of the wheel, then anything they add on, you know, other spokes of the wheel will all be additive. But I think you've got to really have have the good found, have the good foundation. Mm. And along with that Mediterranean diet comes social interaction, which social isolation is a separate risk factor for cardiovascular death. So, Absolutely. So again, and the Mediterranean diet wins. <laughs> and you've got to sit with people and yep. optimism as well. Optimism, when you correct for all other cardiovascular risk factors, becomes just as important. You know, that's why the longest living people, such as in Okinawa, the Mormons in Utah, some of the people in some of, um, some of the other longest living nations all eat together, mm. right? Mm. That's why we're going to be having meals. We shouldn't be eating by ourselves. That's we should right. be eating with friends, family. You know, I think it's an underlooked aspect of cardiovascular health. Mm. Dr. Jason Kaplan, thank you so much for taking us through some of the important aspects of cardiovascular risk and indeed treatment. Uh, I certainly look forward to having further podcasts with you and delving into some more therapies with you. Great, Andrew, thank you very much for the discussion. I really enjoyed it. This is FX Radio and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook.